Hi, I'm Laura Schultz. This is Starting to Feel Better, a podcast about healing from trauma, violence, and abuse. For the past 10 years, I've been an advocate, educator, and social worker, focusing on trauma-responsive care and victim or survivor-centered advocacy. Music is another important part of my life. Lately, I've been especially interested in the intersection between creativity and healing from trauma. In this podcast, I intend to further explore using the creative arts as a method of healing with guests who work in these fields. This is a podcast about connecting with each other and embracing all of the parts of ourselves. It's about recognizing, as Carl Jung said, that we are not what happened to us. We are who we choose to become. Welcome to Starting to Feel Better. I am Jasmine Diavolar. I am Black. I am a femme-identifying person. I am Guyanese, and that's, you know, referencing the West Indian culture. And I think that's a really vital part of my identity that I also like to bring up because it's not as physical to see. I'm queer. I am an artist. I'm a singer, a crochet artist. I'm a listener. I'm a caring person, and I'm a speaker, I'm a storyteller, and recently, organizer, (laughs) so. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Doing a lot, juggling a lot, being a lot, bringing your full self in a really, as you said, caring and loving way. I have so many questions, so I'm going (laughs) to try to get through all of them because there are so many amazing things that you're doing, but... Because it is something that you're working on right now, especially, I wondered if you could speak a little bit to what drew you to organizing in the specific structure that you have been organizing the protests. Sure. I would say, obviously, obviously, the murder of George Floyd really sparked a number of movements across the country and the globe. So I wanted to honor George in, you know, the same ways that most people have been trying to in, you know, organizing, voicing our, you know, our hurt, our anger, our passion, our cries for help right now. Um, So I was just really inspired by all the events that were happening, especially that week. In Minneapolis, I have family and friends that I love dearly in Minneapolis while I'm, you know, living down here in Mankato. So I've been away from the city for, you know, the past five years since I've been attending MSU. So in a way, I do feel distant from, you know, some of the the violence and the, you know, discrimination I could face being in Minneapolis. Uh, it's on a much smaller scale, more subtle scale here in Mankato with a smaller mm-hmm. town. Uh, but during that week, I was also writing my thesis paper, finishing up my graduation requirements, uh, for my anthropology degree. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have the space to fully process everything that was happening that week. There was so much, you know, destruction, so much pain and trauma, so much emotion, and it all was kind of just held in my body the entire week I never Mm -hmm. really got to express that how I really wanted to um it was really hard to focus on my paper while I was doing that just because you know 
my thesis topic was about black culture and specifically talking about black hair and how much hair is important to the black community, especially black women and how Mm -hmm. black hair and how we present ourselves to the world impacts our day-to-day experiences. It impacts our opportunities for jobs and things like that. So I really, really wanted to highlight the importance that it's not just hair for us. It's, mm-hmm. it can be a political statement. It's survival. It's, you know, mm-hmm. all of these things. Uh, and it was so hard to talk about this one little, you know, it's just like a s- scratch on the surface of things that compared to what was happening that week, mm-hmm. it was such a small scale of the kind of things that Black people uh, deal with on a day-to-day basis that it just felt, you know, and genuine, you know, to mm-hmm. really be talking about this and like we've been talking about this and it it was just really hard to focus and really put my all into it. But I also feel like it was a driving force for me to finish and commit uh, so that I can meet my graduation requirements and become another college educated black woman mm-hmm. and really, really hold that title. So that was really important to me. Following that, my professor, actually, who was my advisor on my thesis paper, uh, Dr. Rhonda uh, Das of the anthropology department, she recommended, like, hey, maybe we should do a moment of silence for George and, mm. you know, do something, uh, especially following the few protests that we had here in Mankato. I didn't feel represented. I didn't feel supported. Mm-hmm. And it drew in such a large crowd and sent such a unproductive message Mm -hmm. that really was impactful for me that I needed to step up. And Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of other people in the Black community also felt that, but Mm -hmm. didn't necessarily have the the courage, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like there just wasn't enough of a, you know, push for someone to just come out and, you know, take the lead on it. So I kind of took that idea from the suggestion that she took, uh, that she gave me. And I was like, yes, let's do it. And let's do it every single day. And, you know, a lot of people, especially my friends and my family, just here in Mankato have been very, very supportive in me organizing and supporting me uh, by showing up every single day for the last three weeks now. Uh, So I think not only was it powerful to observe that moment of silence, it's a moment of solidarity. It's a moment of unity and support and having fellow people in my community to show up and say, hey, I care about your life. Your life matters to me. And this was not okay. I want to do more. I want to stand up. Um, And it was just really eye-opening for a lot of people, this whole everything that's been going on. It's been eye-opening for a lot of our white allies wanting to do more than just say, yes, I'm not racist. Yes, I'm not this. And I support you. It's more than that. Now you have to really, really do this work. And everyone's been pretty much ready to do so and are, you know, actively trying to deconstruct the way that we've been trained to be, you know, anti-Black and racist. So it's just been really powerful. I, yeah. I, I've been overwhelmed with support and love and 
it's just been really, really amazing and inspiring for me to continue to use my voice because people are listening at this point. And this is a vital time where we kind of have a spotlight as Black people to really, really put our point across and, you know, get as much momentum as possible to really make these structural changes that we need. Mm -hmm. And in the benefit of everyone, you know, Mm -hmm. like this is not just about uplifting Black folks. It's about Mm -hmm. valuing each life equally. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's just kind of where that stems from me. I'm a peaceful person. I do not, you know, want to engage in violent acts. And I really, really wanted this to just be a moment of reflection. Mm -hmm. During the moment of silence that very first night, I was completely taken aback by how emotional it was. It's a long time, eight minutes and 46 seconds. Mm -hmm. And even still doing it, you know, for the last three weeks, it's still a long time. You know, Mm -hmm. it doesn't really get easier, you know? Yeah. But a lot of people have been really touched. And I think it's been powerful to observe that moment of silence and to keep forming a community by coming every single night. And Mm -hmm. I've really, really gotten to know a lot of different people. I've been in contact with, you know, people across Mankato, North Mankato and St. Peter and other Mm -hmm. organizers and leaders in the community. And I just, it's just really, really amazing to see a lot of people step up and really form together Mm -hmm. to make some changes here. So I'm really, I'm really just ready to see what happens next. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, when you were talking about the, um, minutes of silence i i heard you talking about that on the tf podcast too mm-hmm. um with willis and jake and them mentioning especially how struck they were by how long that time was and i had that same mm-hmm. experience at one of the protests that you organized that i attended where i thought mm-hmm. wow this feels so impossibly long and you can't stop thinking about Mm-hmm. why we're doing this, right? Right. It makes me think about the kind of connection between singing, a group of people with their voices raised, all singing together, and then the opposite of that, right? This like everyone being silent together yes. as equally growing that solidarity, as equally experiencing something together, even though we have Mm -hmm. our own individual way of experiencing it, we're all doing the same thing. And there's something incredibly powerful about that. Yes, definitely. There's definitely power in silence and there's power in our voice as well. Um, And that's, I think, another facet that makes it powerful too is that a lot of people have been silent and that's why it's been continuing so now we're observing this moment of silence to say we are in control we have the power to really change this and Mm -hmm. sometimes silence is needed but also silence kills so Mm -hmm. you know the kind of the balance between those about when to be silent and when not to be is been really uh impactful for me too Mm -hmm. uh Yeah, it's just been really, really awesome to see change happening and knowing that Mankato has seemed to be ready for it. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, it's really encouraging. Mm -hmm. We know that there are members of our community in Mankato who are who are racist. And so seeing a group, a community of people coming together and saying we can't let those loud nonsense voices. Right. 
represent our community, mm-hmm. especially our white community, right? Like, I think it's mm-hmm. encouraging to see other white folks showing up and saying, like, majority okay. of the people attending the protest have been white. And so I've just been really, really shocked, really inspired. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, it's not, it's not that I expected more people of color to show up. Mm-hmm. It's up to their discretion. It's not their responsibility, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, to put themselves on the line to fight for their own lives, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been really impactful to see so many white allies just, you know, they have my back. It's been really, really inspiring. I wanted to follow up just because like we talked about at the beginning, I do think that creativity and art are really inextricably tied to activism. And because I loved what you said on, I don't remember if it was Instagram or Facebook, but some posts that you made recently, which was something to the effect of black joy is important too. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to kind of explore what drew you to crochet art specifically so it's been about a year now since i first picked up a crochet hook which is kind of wild to think about because so much has happened within the last year Mm -hmm. um with everything i've gotten a lot of support uh and things like that but i wanted to find a new hobby something that i could do that would ease my mind. I was going through, you know, a hard time mentally going through a mental health journey. Um, and, you know, after my experience in a, a hospital for a week, I really knew that I had to make a change. I really needed to invest more in my mental health and self-care and all of that. Uh, I'm definitely one of those people that keeps going until I can't anymore. And even then I keep going. So it's really hard for me to make the time for myself and actually care for myself mm-hmm. I just happened upon either an Instagram post of seeing crochet art or you know fashion in particular and then I just you know I was like Ray could you buy me this and mm-hmm. we just tried it and I like was obsessed immediately mm-hmm. uh, it's really amazing the power of making something with your hands and using your your mind and your creativity to really create. And I think I missed that going through the K through 12 system and then college immediately after that, you really, really lose a lot of creativity. Mm -hmm. And I just think that that's just how the system is designed. But I obviously had an interest in music. I loved music since I was a kid, but I really didn't have hobbies. Mm -hmm. So, or like a creative output besides that. So that's really kind of what got me into crocheting. And now that's, you know, all I want to do, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, is just anytime I have free time, I'm like, it's something easy to just, you know, yeah. mindlessly do as well. Yeah. So I can kind of drift my thoughts while also creating beautiful items out of yeah. it. And especially clothing. I've always had interest in fashion. Yeah. Uh, so that just kind of joined both of my favorite things mm-hmm. and creating stuff for myself that I didn't see was represented in, you know, the fashion industry, as we all know that, you know, doesn't support all bodies and things like that. Mm -hmm. So that's why I kind of, you know, I can make my own stuff so I can make it custom fit to my body and other bodies, um, especially those that are marginalized in the, you know, industry. So that's Mm -hmm. kind of what sparked my interest in crocheting. And I still, still love it. Are there ways that activism and organizing 
are impacting your role as a crochet artist or vice versa? I definitely think it does. I know that I haven't made much conversation on my crochet Instagram posts, um, but I do think that it's been impactful to see both sides of that. And, you know, I have two separate accounts, obviously, but mm-hmm. my crochet Instagram, I, you know, as I even scroll through that newsfeed, there's people really, really speaking out and like highlighting the importance of Black uh, crochet artists because mm-hmm. even that industry is filled with white women that are, you know, mm-hmm. getting sponsored by really, really, you know, high brand names and, you know, getting all these sponsorships and free stuff and, you know, this large platform. And then there's, you know, the community of black crochet artists where we have to make our own separate Facebook groups and like right. even yet, yeah, oh my goodness, there's even racism happening in our crochet Facebook groups and having to like, yeah, it's just, it filters into every aspect of, you know, our lives and especially Mm -hmm. in arts as well. So I think it's definitely impacted how I do activism, you know, and I think it's inspired me to even create stuff, you know, outside of that, getting out my frustrations, you Mm -hmm. know, I put blood, sweat and tears into crocheting. So yeah, I got inspired to make my own mask of, you know, a Black Lives Matter fist and, you know, just things like that. It kind of just like all filters into Mm -hmm. my creativity, what I want to do, what my goal is, what my mission is as being a leader, you know, Mm -hmm. because I've kind of stepped into that role, more like jumped into it, yeah, (laughs) like head first. Yeah, yeah. Um, But it's been great. You know, I have a lot of support. I have ways that I can express joy out of that Mm -hmm. and you know talking about the black joy is important too it's it's so so common to see black trauma like across media platforms in real life and Mm -hmm. it's so one to really separate from that and especially as black folks like you know sometimes you have to look away you don't want like it's Mm -hmm. it's traumatizing to see day after day the amount of people that are dying Mm -hmm. and i sometimes i just i'm I'm just sitting there in shock. Yeah. I don't know what to do, what to feel. And and then you feel that pressure that you need to say something. But if yeah. it's happening to me, what like what what can I do? Yeah. You know, how how loud do I have to yell? How loud do I have to, you know, how much trauma do you need me to express to mm. you for mm. you know and it is sometimes I just need to say, I'm not gonna look at that. I'd rather mm-hmm. just have a fun day and I'd mm-hmm. rather you know, do things that spark joy for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, it, and it's also powerful to see positive black imagery in media. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's sickening to see the videos that get circulated of black death and all of these things, like mm-hmm. show black joy, yeah. you know, there's power in that because you get all these messages from seeing black trauma that, mm-hmm. you know, black lives are worthless. They're, mm. you know, like, it's just, it feels that, our bodies are often associated with death and with violence and it would be so much more impactful to see the ways that we contribute to society because we do and like America would not be what it is without black people and especially black art black culture and that's kind of where my inspiration comes from is that black culture makes everything you know it it inspires everything so to have that contradiction between wanting to participate in black culture 
wanting to reap the benefits of Black culture, listen to our music, dance to our music, consume our art, and wear our clothes, wear our hair, and wear everything, you know, and then to not respect ourselves as humans is a huge contradiction that I've always been super fascinated by, you know, talking about just, why is that so? You know, mm-hmm. why why do you want to reap the benefits of what it means to be Black and, you know, all that comes with it, especially because a lot of Black art and culture comes from the expression of our trauma, you know? Mm-hmm. We, we put our trauma, we put our emotions, we put our experiences in our music, in our art, in our culture. And then America markets it and, you know, capitalizes off of it. Mm-hmm. And then we're dying also on top of that. And so this was another question that I had for you is that you've been mm-hmm. speaking out about this sort of bizarre, twisted reality. White mm-hmm. people both appropriating Black culture while also hating, silencing, harming, generally not valuing uh, Black lives and Black people. And mm-hmm. I think you posted something like, they want to be us, but they hate us. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was a really concise, beautiful way of communicating this, like you said, really perplexing reality where mm-hmm. I want everything that you've created, but you as a human person, I could do without. Right. It just really impacts how I navigate my mental health journey. Mm -hmm. I obviously struggle with depression and anxiety. Mm -hmm. And a large part of that is due to my experiences as a Black woman in America. Mm -hmm. And to have all of these messages that my life doesn't matter on top of all of those things, how could I want to, you know, find my place in the world or find the strength to continue living in a world that is not created for me, you know? It's just really perplexing. Yeah, definitely mm-hmm. what you said. It's just that contradiction of wanting everything about me, not me as a person. And as you said, this is really traumatic, ultimately. Mm-hmm. We talk a lot on the podcast about individual trauma. So an event or events that overwhelm one's ability to cope is the definition we often use. But we're also talking about collective trauma. And here, especially the way that people of color, that black and indigenous folks experience both systemic racism and individually see their loved ones and community members experience systemic racism and individual acts of racism against them while also Mm -hmm. seeing those individual acts of racism against their loved ones and community members. So on the last episode, Dr. Brown spoke about the way that he envisions this as a net. Like it feels like all these different pieces coalesce into an overwhelming and painful lived experience. And Mm -hmm. of course, as you're saying, this is not the entirety of people of color's experience. White people like myself just don't live with that part though, right? This Mm -hmm. ongoing experience of racism. I don't have every day, I don't have anxiety about my father, my brother, my husband going for a run or going to the store to buy Skittles Mm -hmm. or tea or sleeping in their houses or being pulled over because of the color of their skin. And I wondered if there were any kind of examples of your own lived experience of surviving 
in a racist society that you wanted to share? I don't even know if I've really yeah. processed a lot of it, honestly. Mm-hmm. I, it really feels like living, like being a black person in America is like constantly being in survival mode. Yeah. Most of the time I'm worrying about my family yeah. and just how my dad is just viewed mm-hmm. as a target and just knowing what I know about my own father and how caring he is and how loving he is. And he's a really soft-spoken he has social anxiety he doesn't even like crowds he doesn't like being around people so for what I know about my father to then you know see what America views of him just by looking at him it's just it causes me a lot of anxiety Mm -hmm. and it feels hopeless sometimes you know because he's also an immigrant he's not my dad is from South America he is from Guyana and in Guyana, he's not the minority. And then to like have that experience from going from a country where most people look like you mm-hmm. to then come to the United States and you're immediately a target for being a, a, a Black man. And it's just like that that transition. He has, I'm sure he has PTSD from, yeah. you know, all of that. And he and my mother and myself a little bit grew up in New York City in the Bronx. And so there's already that added. A lot of it's just worry. And I just remember all the conversations that our parents have with us that are just like, this is what you need to do to avoid, avoid, yeah. avoid, comply, comply, comply. Yeah. And, you know, don't speak out of turn. Don't do this. Don't do that. And it's mm-hmm. like, that wouldn't be the same advice given to anyone else, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, I have to worry about how I sound to people, how I present myself to folks in, mm-hmm. you know, in every aspect of my life. And especially I feel I experienced the most of it in the workplace. And mm. that's already in itself, like really hard to deal with there, especially here living in Mankato with a mm-hmm. lot of the subtle racism that I've experienced. It's just the simple fact of like not honoring me as a, as a human being, as someone that is, you know, the same species as you. Mm-hmm. I've had people avoid me, mm-hmm. more of like an inconvenience to people, especially mm-hmm. like, you know, like grocery stores, like they'll expect me to move out of their way. I'm the inconvenience when there's a path to go around or like, you know, just think little subtle ways in which my life is devalued compared yeah. to others. And I'd say that that's most of like the everyday trauma that I kind of Mm -hmm. have to deal with and a lot of it I have to brush off I have to let it go and a lot of it is not dealt with because the next day it'll be something else yeah and on top of that right there's no time to process that and on top of that being queer I am already thinking about I'm in a unique situation where I'm in an interracial relationship as well so Mm -hmm the experiences that I would experience alone versus when I'm with my white girlfriend are completely different. Yeah. But also there's that aspect of homophobia that can also be, Mm -hmm. if there's just, there's, there's just a lot. Yeah. Um, And it's really hard to process all of that. And I just worry all the time about my siblings. We live in the suburbs in the twin cities and we're, one of probably the only black families in there in that community Mm. and if my sisters are out like being kids and playing outside and like just doing things like that or like playing at night and I'm always like worried for them like please don't do the do anything crazy please don't do anything like that Mm -hmm. because like you know everyone is especially as kids you do you know reckless things and stuff like that but Mm -hmm. it's like 
your experience could be end up so much differently differently. than other people and even just the simple interactions with police like Mm -hmm. i'm always always on guard and Mm -hmm. i don't know i'm always on alert i feel like there's not a lot of time to process yeah and there's very real very scary instances all around us of racism of homophobia becoming violent in an instant becoming deadly in an instant and that is not something that you can just forget Mm -hmm. that that's the reality Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i think it's just it's really important to as you know white allies to really think about the ways in which you have that freedom to feel comfortable absolutely in any space absolutely in literally any space even if you are the only white person in a space where there's the rest of them are black you still will feel much safer mm-hmm. than everyone else there yeah so i think it's really impactful to have the have conversations with other black people just more compassion i think is really needed and mm-hmm. really a lot of reflection and what you can do to prevent even just the day-to-day things I think is more important than even mm-hmm. trying to make all these structural big changes. Cause that's, yeah. that's going to take generations to mm-hmm. do, but you have power to change just the small interactions that you have. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they're all happening hand in hand too. Right. Right. So the changes that you can make on an individual level will mm-hmm. necessarily impact structures. Mm-hmm. That's how structures are built with individuals. Exactly. So kind of coming again to our conversation about crochet and cultural appropriation and narratives about Black art. I did a little bit of research about crochet prior to our conversation today. Very small Mm -hmm. amount. But I, Mm -hmm. I found that research has suggested that It probably developed most directly from Chinese needlework, this ancient form of embroidery in Turkey and India and Persia and North Africa. But a lot of the way that the narrative is sort of about who does crochet, what Mm -hmm. is crochet, is maybe like an older white straight lady. Right. And this is not the reality, but this is kind mm-hmm. of one of the one of the narratives about what crochet is. So I wondered if you might want to kind of offer a rebuttal to that narrative about what crochet is and who creates crochet art. Some of my experience in making an Instagram page for to like display my crochet art obviously really really whitewashed across the, you know, the Instagram community. I think you can find that in pretty much any aspect of Instagram, any, you know, niche. Just the contrast between how they look, like how the Instagram posts look, how the feed looks, what's talked about in the feeds, what's talked about in their comments and kind of the conversations that are brought up. It just, it really feels that Black crochet artists are not welcome. Although we contribute a lot to the creativeness that happens and that sparks from uh from crocheting especially Mm -hmm. modern um crocheting because 
obviously as you know kind of what most people assume about crochet is like oh you make scarves you make blankets you make sure. you know it's like something that your grandma teaches you maybe yeah um but it really has sparked such a movement especially yeah. among like modern urban art creators to push the boundaries of crochet what you can make with crochet and how versatile it is mm -hmm. and but Instagram doesn't seem like there's a space for that sure. and oftentimes we have to form our own communities which black folks are really really used to um and my experience with Facebook groups and things like that finding support and you know in community and sharing and stuff like that most of the predominantly white groups tend to only have baby crochet stuff mm. blankets scarves things there's less availability for you know anything beyond that mm -hmm. it's kind of everything is kind of censored you mm -hmm. know and i think already there is the stigma of black women's bodies and mm -hmm. the hypersexualizing of that and i've already been struggling with that and like how i want to present my art sure. a lot of the time like when i or when I'm designing fashion through crocheting, I, I have mannequins and things like that, but it's more impactful to try to fit it on myself before I try to promote that I can make this for, you know, anybody, you know, yeah. like it makes sense to show it fitting me and things like that, especially because my body does, my body type does not fit the standard in many ways. I've just had a lot of experiences already that are discouraging mm -hmm. me from using my creativity and how to display my crochet art and what's mm -hmm. appropriate and what's not appropriate yeah. quote unquote, and just things like that i like most of the groups that i'm a part of and active in are formed by black women yeah. who want to show our art uh, we've had experiences where black women would post their art in the groups and they'd get shadow banned essentially or not mm. posted or you know this is inappropriate. You're showing too much. And like, you know, and it's just, right. You're policing, policing our bodies, policing our art in many ways across and in, platforms. And in different ways than white exactly. bodies would be policed. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Exactly. I was trying to model one of my crochet pieces and I literally had some white kids yelling profanities at asking to show my body to them. And it's just, yes, yes. And they're my neighbors. They're right across from me. And it's like, it was just really disgusting. I felt, I felt disgusting. I felt violated and just, mm -hmm. I already feel that way as a black woman and, you know, and just a woman that feels, you know, constantly hypersexualized and mm -hmm. on top of that, you know, with race and things like that. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's just really hard to find my niche. And it's also more prone to like more like black crochet artists are prone to have less following mm. less sponsorships mm -hmm. all of that mm -hmm. um so you it's you know something that we shouldn't expect but is expected in communities like mm -hmm. that i'm thinking about that instance that you just shared about your neighbors sexualizing you and yelling things at you and i'm thinking mm -hmm. about the ways that that also connects to racism the ways that not being able to define for other people, here's, here's who I am, that they get to read whatever they want to onto your mm -hmm. body as a black femme person. 
mm-hmm. that that rings back to one of the words that you used earlier, that it can feel really hopeless, that you mm-hmm. can begin to feel like you don't have as much agency right. as other folks do, especially white men, but also white women um, who don't have these layers of um, what people are interpreting through their lenses of Mm -hmm. racism, homophobia, sexism, and just how how painful that is um, and how angry that would make a person, but then Mm -hmm. also how black anger is so policed. Yes. (laughs) Um, Yes. And so white people especially are creating these um, situations over and over again. They're creating them where they are of course making black people angry and then black people are angry and then white people are like, why are you so angry? (laughs) Right. It's like such a slap in the face. It's like, like literally slapping me in the face and then saying that you didn't slap me. Right. And it's like, um, I felt it, you know, yeah. I was there, you know, and so much yeah. of my experience has been policing my anger and my passion and mistaking it for mm-hmm. anger. Mm-hmm. When are, you know, when are men police for their anger consistently time mm-hmm. and time again, you know, and it mm-hmm. feels like an expectation on black, you know, femmes in particular to really, really censor their emotions. Always, ha- they always need to have their emotions in check. Otherwise, mm-hmm. there these, there's these monsters that are just so angry. Like, why are mm. they so angry? Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, attaching violence to that as well. Right. And I've just had that experience too with just even interactions on Facebook. People are just assuming that I'm this, like, mm. inc- inciting violence because I'm calling you, rightfully so, calling you out on things. Mm-hmm. And it's just it's always been frustrating yeah uh especially in school and education black girls especially are suspended three times the rate as their white counterparts and most of the time they are speaking out to injustice of things that they've been experiencing and no one else gets in trouble for it and yeah you know it's just it's uh, very very often that black women are silenced because Mm -hmm. of that even in movements like the Black Lives Matter movement, we, yeah. we've consistently been on the back burner. It's been a, always been a focus on cis, hetero, Black men. Mm-hmm. And while they do experience, you know, violence like that, like Black, black femmes and especially Black trans women mm. experience the most, the most violence out of any group, mm-hmm. any. Mm-hmm. And it's not talked about enough. And when we do try to bring it up, then it's like, well, we're talking about all Black people, but you're not. But right. you're not. And right. it's really, really clear that you aren't. And you're trying to police whether I am Black or queer. Like, I have right. to separate the two. And, mm-hmm. you know, talking about... I, I physically cannot separate those identities. Right. I am Black as much as I am queer, as much as I am a femme. Right. And expecting me to then hide my queerness to... Mm. speak up or even have a voice in the movement Mm -hmm. then you're not talking about me it's very very tough being black or queer or femme especially Mm -hmm. trans so Mm -hmm. yeah this kind of picking a box or picking a lane that that um you can't be working in a variety of movements um or you can't bring your whole self 
to one movement. Um, Tarana Burke did an interview recently and she was saying, I'm getting pushback from people who are saying, you're supposed to work on the Me Too stuff, mm-hmm. not the Black Lives Matter stuff. And she's like, well, what about like, first of all, my Black life mattering. Right. <laughs> and also all the intersections, mm-hmm. like police, state violence, especially sexual violence against Black yes. women, Black femmes black trans women like this is an incredibly um mm, it's not on the public agenda in the Mm -hmm. ways that other forms of violence against black bodies is and that's not for lack of black femmes black women speaking out about it Mm -hmm. but it's not prioritized in the same way right and it's it's also an interesting thing that Black men contribute to a lot of that violence. And yet we're still speaking up and standing up for the sake of their lives. Right. And then we get violence on us by those same very Black men, you know? Right. And it's just really tough to, to find our place. We, we right. it's like, it feels like, even though we want movements to be cohesive and things like that, it's really, really easy to center certain folks. Mm-hmm. and leave others in the back yeah jeff talked a lot on the last podcast episode he talked a lot about community and the importance of community and finding mm-hmm. community and i wondered if um and you've mentioned a few times you've said the word support like i have a lot of support and i wondered um i wondered if there were any things that you wanted to speak about with regards to finding community, with regards to finding people who support you, who are consistently there for you in the ways that have been meaningful for you? Yeah, I think a huge, huge uh, part of my support system is the friends that I made here at MSU. Mm-hmm. Um, in particular, the Women's Center and the LGBT Center. I've met my chosen family there. I've gone through a lot of life experiences with them. And I think it's really impactful that it was my college friends because, you know, when I was in high school, things like that, I never really processed a lot of the trauma that I experienced. You know, I didn't focus on my mental health. I didn't Mm -hmm. see that you know, certain things that I grew up experiencing wasn't okay. Yeah. Um, Or just not processing that. And it was really important that I had folks that were like, hey, that wasn't, you know, something that should have happened to you. Or, you know, maybe you should talk this out with someone and, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that. And it started from those relationships I made in the Women's Center and the LGBT Center um, and just having other people that looked like me had the mm-hmm. same ideas as me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a lot of, you know, my relationships that I've formed with others stems from that, that shared trauma, Yeah. you know? Uh, and I think that's why the black community has always been so connected and powerful in that mm-hmm. way is that we all have this, you know, universal experience and, yeah trauma is embedded in that and embedded in our DNA. Having other Black queer women in my life has been really impactful in my development and 
feeling more confident in myself, leadership and speaking up about what I'm passionate about. Because, you know, previous to that, I predominantly had white friends or just people who didn't care about my well-being, you know. So I think it really, really has been impactful since being in Mankato to find that support system. And my family has always been supportive of me too. So Mm -hmm. having that strong, you know, foundation with family keeping me going. And I think community is amazing. And just the people that I've met here, I also think that I just kind of attract those kind of people. I don't know. I'm a really, I'm outgoing and compassionate. And I Mm -hmm. just feel like that kind of comes back to me in the people that I meet So mm-hmm. uh, that's been really impactful to not only experience that through my friends, but through even these protests, mm-hmm. just people wanting to show up and then developing that trust yeah. is super, super important. I think that is one of the most vital, vital things that you need to have as far as saying, if this is my community, you need to trust these people. Yeah. And the people that I've been sharing solidarity with on the bridge we've been building trust with each other and really really bonding over this moment and over what we've been experiencing together Mm -hmm. as far as counter protesting and just things like that has been really impactful I I was really overwhelmed that one night where our numbers tripled Mm -hmm. to 180 and that was just I was like on the verge of tears almost because yeah I, it's hard to know when that support is there. Yeah. And it's hard, especially being a Black woman, it feels like there's no one there. No one that feels those experiences with you or supports you or believes you Mm -hmm. in your experiences. So to see that has been really powerful, really, really encouraging. And I think it just really stems from that, that compassion, me storytelling and telling my story and telling others, others stories and really bonding over that in that trauma and also in the hopes of a better world, I think binds us together as well. As you identified at the beginning um, that you're a singer, that you're an incredible singer, a really rock solid solo singer, but also a really fantastic choral singer. And I know this because you participated in the choir that the Violence Awareness and Response Program had, as well as as a solo singer um, when we went virtual this past Mm -hmm. April, because of course we did. Yeah. (laughs) But but, so I wondered if there were ways that you feel like music has impacted your mental health journey, maybe bolstering self-image or confidence. Yes, I I just always, music has always been a powerful part of my life since I was a kid, um, especially growing up with, you know, that West Indian Caribbean culture. Music is a huge part of our family. Um, you know, Sunday mornings, reggae would be playing, blasting on our speakers, and I knew that it was time to wake up and uh-huh. clean and, you know, do all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So music has always been a part of my life. And I love how it makes me feel. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel warm. And, you know, I can really fine tune, you know, the different music that I listen to or, you know, sing to Mm -hmm. really uh, channel my thoughts, channel my feelings. Yeah. Um, In particular, you know, that experience that I did that solo piece for, you know, the Take Back the Night virtual thing. You know, even though I didn't, I don't personally have those experiences of, you know, domestic or intimate partner violence. I 
knew that I could still use my voice and my passion to really vocalize what I feel, mm-hmm. how I want to support and, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. And I think it's music is really powerful in that way. Mm-hmm. Also, just as part of my self-care, if I, you know, I'm feeling down and things like that, I listen to music and I like to sing. I love driving in my car because I could sing at the top of my lungs with no one else there. And it's like, it's always been a part of my life. I uh, love, I think singing has been a big part of boosting my confidence too, since leaving high school. I was in choir and stuff in high school, but I was never really challenged to really sing to my ability. Uh, it wasn't until I got to college where I joined the choral program here and, you know, Dr. David Dickow was, heard me sing a solo and was like, I want you in my choir and, you know, yeah. things like that. And it just felt really good to, you know, finally get that recognition uh, yeah. and that validation that, you know, it's not just a passion for me and that, you know, I have some ability mm-hmm. <laughs> in doing that. So, and core music especially is one of my favorite things. I think my voice is very, very conditioned for that. I love singing soprano how it works as a group is so powerful. I, you know, it's all, there's all these different parts, but then as together, it's like amazing. And I love it. (laughs) I agree. I It's so cool. I talked to a music therapist on the podcast and then a friend of mine who lives in Madison. Mm -hmm. Um, The friend of mine who lives in Madison does community singing. Mm. And there are these community song leaders. And she said, it's like, this person knows exactly how to create like goosebump moments, you know, like full Mm -hmm. body responses to the music. And then um, the music therapist was also talking about, she was trained in orchestras. And so saying like orchestral music just gives me full body goosebumps. And I agree with you totally Jasmine, that for me, it's definitely when I'm in a choir and there are like different, you know, there's like the baritones mm-hmm. behind me and the tenors over here and other sopranos around me feeling mm-hmm. like this is, we're making this. I think there's something right. so much about that that we're talking yes. about today is the expansiveness of creativity, mm-hmm. the ability to make something that wasn't there before, to create an experience that wasn't there right. before and how profound that is. Yes, community, like feeling that in groups, like there's power in groups. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just with my anthropological background and talking about human culture and what it means to be human, all of what we are are because we live in groups and we, yeah. you know, have art, we have culture. That's what makes us who we are. Um you know, you can't really survive long being on your own. You need to have a community around you. Uh, And I think that's really, really impactful as far as activism and Mm -hmm. music and how how groups make you feel like you're just one soul being. Yeah. So I think music plays a huge part in that uh, in creating something together and, and creating community at the bridge. So knowing that like, connection looks different than it has at any point in our lives. (laughs) Right. It's different from that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so just kind of wondering, like, how are you still able to forge, maintain those connections? It sounds like a lot of it is through your time at the bridge. Totally. Yeah. And I wondered if there were any other ways that, that you're, 
that you're growing those connections, that you're remaining connected and balanced? I, even just the, you know, conversations that I have at the bridge and uh, after the moment of silence, you know, there's this crowd that kind of comes together and, you know, is listening to me speak or listening to whoever's speaking. And outside of that, having those folks individually come up to me and yeah. say, thank you for doing this. Thank you for organizing this. And I would love to be in contact with you. In, you know, making mm-hmm. those individual connections has been um, primarily due to the protest. And yeah. I've met so many amazing people because of that. Uh, yeah. And, you know, I've met, I don't know, I've just had so much opportunity in meeting all the people that have been attending these protests and just yeah. could, you know, having that connection between individuals outside of that as well uh, mm-hmm. has been really powerful. And, you know, the internet is obviously our friend. Facebook has been really awesome in, you mm-hmm. know, making sure that we're all connected in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh yeah, I'd say that those are some of the ways that I stay connected with folks and, you know, yeah. trying to meet up with other community members in the community to figure out what, what can we do to continue the community engagement. And that's mm-hmm. something that we've been working on. Yeah. Uh, so there will definitely be some events happening in the future where the community can have more of that engagement outside of just the protesting because protest is like the easy part you can easily show up and you can easily do that but there is a lot of other work to be done Mm -hmm. uh, and then staying engaged and continuing the momentum especially in this time it's a very unique space where we have that opportunity and everyone is watching us and listening to us based on your own lived experience based on what has worked for you what is one thing that someone could do right now to begin to feel more grounded or centered or to help them through an intense, unpleasant emotion? For me, I typically process in like alone and really going back to the basics of what gives me positive emotions. Um, so whether that is, you know, tuning everything out and listening to my favorite music dancing, watching my favorite series on TV. And I also have, you know, friends and a partner that I can confide in that really helps me try to process that emotion. But I would say probably music or crocheting has been, you know, the most helpful to really ground myself and breathing techniques and meditation and things like that I started to get into. So that's been really helpful as well. Awesome. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your conversation around creativity and activism and anti-racism. I I really value your voice. I'm really grateful that you took the time out to speak with me today. Of course, of course. Thanks so much for listening. This has been our last episode of our first season of Starting to Feel Better. We'll be back in a couple months. Intro and outro music was recorded by my band, Goodnight Gold Dust.